In the name of God, most merciful and merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Uh, and welcome to this new lecture on uh, in our series on Imamah, where we are now at the fourth lecture uh, related to establishing this notion, this belief of the Imamah, the belief of the Imam. And today, uh, the, the topic that we want to address, and inshallah, we'll finish with this topic, has to do with the traits of the Imam. Uh, what are the distinguishing features of the Imam? And uh, as we said, as we've explained until now, we said that uh, there are three main distinguishing traits in the Shia theory about Imam or the Imam. There are three distinguishing traits. The first one is the one that we covered until now, which is the, that it has to be someone who is divinely appointed. Secondly, it has to be someone who is infallible. And thirdly, it has to be someone who has divine knowledge. And so until now, we've covered the first one, which is the divine appointment. And today, inshallah, we're going to cover the uh, last two of those traits, which are infallibility and the knowledge of the Imam. So before going any further, I'd like to maybe do a couple of minutes of recap of where we are so that the logic of what we're presenting is clear and, and fresh in your mind. What we've said until now regarding the notion of the Imam or the topic of Imam in Islam is that, first of all, it's one of the most, if not the most controversial topic in Islamic theology. And we said that there's probably no other topic about which so much has been written and uh, so much has been said and which has caused so much disagreement and discord and uh, perhaps even bloodshed in Islamic history as the topic of Imam. So there is no doubt about the fact that this is a controversial topic, uh, if not the most controversial topic in Islam. We're aware of this. And I think we gave uh, enough of a general uh, instruction or directive on how we're supposed to approach and deal and address this topic given its controversial nature. Does it mean that we just ignore it and leave it aside because it's kind of a turnoff and we don't want to create more discord and disunity and all of that? Do we just leave it aside? And we said, no, of course, we have to treat this as just another one of the uh, you know, scientific important uh, topics in Islamic uh, belief. Uh, and this is part of our worldview and belief system. And we've explained until now the importance of this topic, meaning that we cannot just ignore it. You need to take a position on this, just like you need to take a position on the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the afterlife and the fact that there is a prophet, because this is going to be determining every other aspect of your religion. And in fact, we, the, the case we made last time when we met is that depending on what you believe in this topic, your belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to be different. And your belief in the nubuwa is going to be different. And your belief in the hereafter is going to be different. All because you're going to be taking your religion from this person that you consider to be the imam. Otherwise, if you don't have access to this person, then you're going to be building your own belief system without the presence of this person that you consider to be an additional source of knowledge 
and religious authority after the Holy Prophet of the, uh, the Holy Quran. Okay, so I think the importance of the topic and how it is to be addressed, best to be addressed, I think this part should be clear enough for, for all of us who have been following along until now. The second part, uh, I think, of the recap needs to be that we spent time clearly uh, explaining, identifying, presenting, introducing this notion of the imam. What, when a person who is a Muslim in general speaks about imam or the imam, what do they actually mean? And what does it specifically mean within the Shia doctrine, within the Shia worldview? Is it the same or not? And we basically said, no, there's a very big difference because the, in the majority of the cases, what is being referred to as an imam is simply someone who is playing a role of leadership. And most likely, if you go back historically, typically, this is the role of political leadership that has been played by, you know, all sorts of rulers and leaders and, you know, khulafa and others uh, throughout Islamic history. When in reality, in the Shia worldview, in the Shia doctrine, what we believe to be and who we believe to be an imam needs to meet three conditions, three criteria. They need to be divinely appointed, they need to be infallible, and they need to be uh, to have access or to be granted divine knowledge. And we explained all of that without proving it first. We explained what we mean just to say this is to clearly establish what the Shia actually believe in. Because as we said, a lot of people actually think, for instance, in the case of the appointment, that the Shia believe that the Holy Prophet appointed Imam Ali himself, kind of like at a personal level, uh, as a personal choice, a personal preference, the Holy Prophet decided that Imam Ali should be successful. And we said, no, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who appoints an Imam, and the appointment of Imam Ali as an Imam came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so we explained all of that to clearly establish first and foremost, what do the Shia actually believe in? And then once that's done, we tried to explain why is it that we say the Shia have to believe in those things? Why do the Shia say an Imam needs to meet those specific conditions, the divine appointment, the infallibility, the usma, and the access to divine knowledge? Why does that person, the Imam, need to meet those criteria? And in short, we said it's because this person is playing the exact same role as the Holy Prophet is playing, and as the Prophets are playing. The same role that they play in the guidance of humanity is going to be played by those people. So for them to be divinely granted and commissioned to play that role, they need to meet those criteria. If they are not divinely appointed, then how do we know that this is supposed to be this person or that person who is going to represent the religion as it is? And if they do not have infallibility, then how do I know that what they are doing and what they are saying is actually matching to the truth? And this is not only going to lead me into further misguidance, or how is it different than the opinion of any other scholar, for instance? And then the third is, and where do they get their knowledge? So when I ask them, where are they taking the answers that I need and upon which I'm going to be building my religion? And we explained that the state in which the Holy Prophet lived, the conditions, the political, the social, the cultural, the historic, the military conditions in which the Holy Prophet lived, meant that he was not able to explain and to apply to everyone around him every aspect of religion and to eternity and in a way that would be preserved and that would spread to everyone who would become a follower of the Holy Prophet until the end of times. 
because this is supposed to be the universal universal and eternal religion so for this religion to be uh, actually able to be preserved and then to be communicated and to be applied in every area of life in the proper way until the end of times if you look at the conditions in which the holy prophet had to live the 23 years of his mission and the difficulties through which he had to go through the military battles the the poverty the oppression the life in mecca was one thing the life in medina was another thing and we went through all those details we saw that it was basically it is not realistic to expect that the holy prophet is going to be able to communicate that religion in all of its uh, you know grandeur and all of its detail and all of its nuances and sophistication and and uh, and complexity to you know generations and generations of humanity until the end of times given those conditions so allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instead chose that there would be a cycle that completes the mission of the holy prophet which is the cycle of the imamah made up of 12 imams and who are going to play the same role as the holy prophet in explaining the teachings of this religion and making sure that the people understand how this religion is to be applied in every area of life and with that and those can and those teachings of those 12 imams then humanity has enough to work with in order to be able to apply this religion the final religion to humanity until the end of times so all of that is what we explained and then we moved on to the three traits that we mentioned for the imams and we said that each one of these needs to be established proven separately okay so the first one has to do with the divine appointment so the last time we met we actually went through this and we gave a number of proofs a number of arguments to clearly establish that this divine appointment actually did occur that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did appoint himself an imam and we went from the beginning we looked at a number of verses of the quran we said this is just the tip of the iceberg there are so many more verses of the quran and narrations and 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 that we could add to this but this is just as an introductory level we're saying so if we look at chapter 5 surah al-ma'idah verse 67 and we look at surah al-ma'idah verse 3 the first one was revealed right before the event of ghadir communicate that which has been revealed to you from your lord and if you do not then you would not have revealed uh, communicated any of the messages so basically whatever he had to communicate was equivalent to the entire message of islam and we said that this is, was the wilaya this was the actual official appointment of imam ali alayhi salam as a successor of the holy prophet as a divinely appointed imam over uh, the nation of the holy prophet and then after the event of ghadir after the appointment took place allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed another verse that basically said today your religion has been completed so the perfection of religion the completion of the blessing and the approval of this religion as islam as a full religion from humanity that is accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all dependent and all conditioned upon the belief and the acceptance of this thing which has just happened. And by this, now those who are mushrikeen are now in a state of despair. Those who are disbelievers today, because of the, this appointment, they've despaired. They're hopeless because they know that they can no longer infiltrate this religion and hijack it and take it over because the Holy Prophet has now appointed someone as a successor. When before that, 
maybe there was a possibility to hijack this religion and take it over under the claim that this is still Islam, but it's actually Quraysh coming back into power. Okay, this is what we need to understand from those verses. And then we went and explained in short the events that actually took place in Ghadir Khum. We explained the Sermon of the Holy Prophet where the Holy Prophet spoke for perhaps around three hours that day, citing more than 100 verses of the Holy Quran after Hajjat al-Wada' and clearly appointing Imam Ali alayhi salam and then how the poet stood and recited poetry to commemorate that event live and then the companions and all the influential personalities and figures came to Imam Ali alayhi salam to congratulate him all of them, Ibn Abbas, Abu Bakr, Omar, and others all came and said, Bakhin, Bakhin, Lakia Ali, congratulations, bravo, bravo, O Ali. You have now become my guardian and my wali and my leader and the leader of everyone who follows the Holy Prophet. And then we provided other proofs. We said, for instance, that this was the time when the Holy Prophet appointed Imam Ali alayhi salam officially and publicly. But this was not the only time that the Holy Prophet had appointed Imam Ali. In fact, he had appointed him numerous, I don't want to say countless, but dozens of times before. And in every case, the Holy Prophet was clear, except that this was a very special occasion because of how public it was, how forceful and official it was with the surrounding verses of the Quran and with all the context. As we said, there were perhaps 100,000 people who had performed the pilgrimage and to whom the Holy Prophet wanted to deliver the sermon at, uh, after Hajjat al-Wada' at Ghadir Khum so that the majority, the maximum of people can hear and then spread as the Holy Prophet would tell them those who are present among you let them go and, and spread this news and tell those who are absent who are not here about this. Okay, so this event was the official appointment and the official declaration and the official nomination of Imam Ali salam as a successor of the Holy Prophet. But when we go back throughout the entire prophetic mission, we see all the times in which the Holy Prophet actually said that my successor is Imam Ali salam. And we have this right from the beginning of the mission of the Holy Prophet. As soon as the Holy Prophet got the order from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to start inviting people to religion, inviting the most closest people of his own family to religion first, in Surah Al-Shu'ara, verse 214, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, invite, start inviting your kinsfolk, your, the people of your family. So he invited members of Quraysh and Bani Hashim, and he told them, who amongst you is going to support me and assist me in this mission that he explained to them? And then that person is going to become my successor. He's going to become my wazir. He's going to become the person who will succeed me in this mission. And the only person who would rise again and again, and he was a very young man at that point, very young in his age, Imam Ali salam, he would get up, stand again and again three times, and he said, I will do it. And the others just stood there and did not say anything. And then they actually mocked Abu Talib, who was part of the gathering, because his son, his young son was there, and they told him, you know, get ready to start obeying your son, Abu Talib. That was right from the beginning of the mission that the Holy Prophet appointed Imam Ali salam as his successor. Okay, and so this was the beginning of all the scriptural reasons, all the scriptural evidence that we said we are going to rely on to uh, clearly establish that a divine appointment actually took occur, uh, uh, did occur, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did appoint someone himself directly. So we established this, now we want to move on to those two other traits of an imam. We said 
We need the imam, in addition to being divinely appointed, because they're playing the same role as a prophet, we also need them to be infallible, and we need them to have divine knowledge, access to divine knowledge. So with regards to the topic of infallibility, <clears throat> we are basically going to be building on everything we said. So we keep in mind everything that we just said about the divine appointment of Imam Ali salam, all of the proofs that we said. And in addition to this, that now we know someone has been divinely appointed. Now we want to look at their infallibility. And for this, we are going to look at three verses of the Holy Quran and Hadith al-Taqalay. Okay, the first verse of the Holy Quran is the verse in Surah al-Baqarah, verse 124, in Surah al-Baqarah, chapter 2. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us <clears throat> of all the tests, of all the challenges, of all the tribulations that he asked Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam to go through. And we are told that Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam went through all of these challenges magnificently. He was very successful. He displayed the higher level, the highest levels of, of patience and, and you know resolve and steadfastness and religiousness and pious piety in going through all of those. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after of course he had already been a prophet and he had already been a messenger. So these are higher and higher ranks. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to him, and when his Lord tested Ibrahim with words and he fulfilled them, he said, I am making you the imam of mankind, of humankind. He said, and from among my descendants, what about the people who are going to come from my lineage? Prophet Ibrahim salam was always very concerned. If you look at all his invocations and prayers, we have many of them in the Holy Quran. He's always praying for his progeny. He's always praying for the people who are from his descendants all the way to Yom Al-Qiyam. Okay? He says he wants this, this mission of guiding humanity and being righteous and being good to remain in his progeny all the way to the end of times. So he prays for them and he asks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As soon as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him, I am making you an imam, he says, well, what about my progeny? I'd like this imam to remain in my progeny. I also want my progeny to be carriers of this honor, of this mission, of this divine mission. So he says, and from among my descendants, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered him, my pledge or my covenant, which is this imama. So imama is a pledge, is a covenant, is a special divine mission, okay? Does not extend to those who are unjust or to those who are wrongdoers. How does this prove the infallibility of the imams? Well, first of all, it should go without saying that the Holy Prophet is a direct descendant of Prophet Ibrahim salam, and that the Imams are direct descendants of Prophet Ibrahim salam, and so that peace is established. Now, when Prophet Ibrahim prays for the Imam to remain in his progeny, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not say yes and he does not say no. He gives him a condition. He tells him basically, if someone is able to live without ever becoming unjust, ever becoming a wrongdoer, then those people from among your progeny, from among your lineage, those people are going to be allowed to become the Imams. So, this part, so far, so good. What about this idea of being unjust, of being a wrongdoer? What does that mean? In the Quran, it says, It's this notion of dhulm. The majority of us, when we hear the word dhulm, especially the, the Arab speakers, 
we might think, for instance, of someone oppressing, transgressing or aggressing someone else, you know, going beyond the bounds and committing an injustice against someone else. But this is not how Vulm is understood in the Holy Quran. It's a lot broader, a lot more general, or a lot more uh, comprehensive. The notion of Vulm in the Quran does not only include when you perform or when you commit an injustice against someone else in the manner that we described. The injustice could be against yourself too. And this is how the Holy Quran refers. It says there are rights. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has rights over you and other people have rights over you and then you have rights over yourself. And if you have any lacks with regards to any of those rights, then you are falling into injustice. You are unjust. You are a wrongdoer. To the extent that you are going against the rights of yourself or of Allah or of someone else, you are being unjust. In other words, and the Holy Quran is very clear, and I, I have uh, some references to some verses there, to uh, Surah Al-Baqarah 229, uh, chapter 65, the first verse, and so on and so forth. The Holy Quran clearly says, whoever goes beyond, who transgresses, who trespasses the boundaries, the, the borders of Allah, in other words, the instructions, the orders, the directives, the commands, the laws of Allah, whoever does that, whoever, in other words, commits a sin. The moment a human being commits a sin, they are now in a state of injustice. And so this is extremely relevant from an akhlaqi, from a self-purification point of view. If I don't want to fall into injustice, if I do not want to become a zalim, if I want to always be in a state where I'm receiving the divine blessing and mercy, at my level, I may not receive it at the level of a, an imam, but at my level, then I cannot be in a state of injustice. Okay? So this is more from an akhlaq point of view, from a spiritual purification point of view. What about on the other side of this notion of imam? What this tells us is, in order for someone to be an imam from the descendants of Prophet Ibrahim السلام, then they must meet this condition of never having sinned. Okay, but who does this apply to? Who could this possibly apply to except the only people who have ever claimed, as we said last time we met, who have ever claimed to be infallible. And the only people about whom no one no one, imagine how difficult this is, no one has ever come and said they made a mistake. They missed something. They forgot something. They had the wrong ayah. They forgot someone, even if it's not related to religion. No one has ever claimed that about themselves or about anyone else, except for Ahl al-Bayt. And this becomes the first proof. This is the importance of this ayah. That's the reason why I mention it. To say when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants the prayer of Ibrahim and tells him that Imam is actually going to be within his descendants and progeny, then there's a condition, and that condition is that those people must remain in a state of sinlessness. They can never fall into injustice. They must remain in that state forever so that they are allowed to remain within the condition of being an Imam. Okay, so this is the first verse that we wanted to talk about. The second verse that we wanted to talk about, and that again has to do with infallibility, is a verse in Surah Al-Nisa, verse 59. This one says, 
O you who have faith, obey Allah and obey the Messenger and those vested with authority among you, those who have been granted an authority among you, those who have been given an authority among you. So here, there's a big discrepancy, there's a big discussion, dialogue, conflict about what does it mean and who are those who have the authority. So first and foremost, I'd ask you to go back to the last lecture where we gave a number of narrations from the Holy Prophet himself that explain verse uh, chapter 4, verse 59. Surat al-Nisa, verse 59, which clearly establishes and says, who are those with authority? Who are those who have been vested, granted authority from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks us to obey them. So how does this verse, keeping that in mind, how does this verse establish the infallibility of anyone? How do we say that just this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, obey Allah and obey the messenger and obey those vested with authority. How does this verse prove the infallibility of anyone? Is it, when we go back to the Holy Quran, we see that there's a general rule. The Holy Quran, every time it tells us to obey someone, it adds a condition. The Holy Quran knows that there's no one who's perfect out there. When the Holy Quran, for instance, tells us, obey your parents and honor your parents and listen to your parents, it adds a condition. But if they ask you to do that which Allah does not accept, for instance, ascribe partners to Allah, then do not obey them. The Holy Quran is very clear. It just said you have to honor them and you have to respect them, and but it has to add that condition. You might think it goes without saying. The Quran doesn't leave it to chance. It will still come and tell you exactly very clearly, this is the, the, the limit of obeying and not obeying. There are going to be conditions and situations and circumstances when even the best of the people that you think and you believe in and you want to follow and you want to respect, they're going to make mistakes. So the Holy Quran says what you're following is the truth. You're not following the people. And so long as the people are following the truth, you follow them. The moment they deviate, you stop following them. Okay. The condition is always there in the Holy Quran. But then sometimes the Holy Quran talks about a type of obedience without any conditions. So for instance, when the Holy Quran talks about obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's no condition. It just says obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When the Holy Quran talks about prophets, it says, and we have never sent a prophet to humankind, to their people, except that they be obeyed. In other words, this is the reason why we send prophets. The only reason we send prophets is that people obey them. Ah, so here the Holy Quran is saying there are people that are supposed to be obeyed all the time. No conditions. Which means what? Which means that those people are never going to lead you astray. And this is how we establish the prophethood of prophets in general when we talked about the infallibility of prophets. And then when you come to other people, for instance, our Holy Prophet, we have clear verses of the Holy Quran that clearly say, obey Allah and obey the Messenger. Whatever the Messenger gives you, take. Whatever he tells you to leave, leave. And so, other, so many other verses that talk about this. Okay. So with this, now we've clearly established that when the Holy Quran talks about normal people, normal situations and circumstances, it says there are limits to obedience. The limits are so long as the person is within the truth, 
then you keep following them and obeying them and honoring them and respecting them. As soon as they don't, then this, for this extent, you do not follow them. But it doesn't do this in the case of obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or obeying the Holy Prophet or obeying prophets in general. So here when we come to a verse like this and we see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not give any conditions. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just says, obey Allah and obey the messenger and those vested with authority among you. What does it tell us? It tells us that those who are vested with authority among the nation of the Holy Prophet have to be infallible. Otherwise, the Holy Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have added the conditions. Which conditions are those under which I will obey them and under which conditions will I not obey them? But because there are no conditions, then we know that this is absolute obedience, which can only mean that those people are infallible. Now, if we want to interpret this verse as being those who are leaders politically, for instance, those who became khulafa, so take any khalifa, and we went through the examples, how Abu Bakr says, I have a devil, and so if you see that I am doing the truth, help me. And if you see that I am doing, saying or doing something wrong, and my evil is working on me, then rectify, and tell me, and correct me, right? And we went through, you know, the words of Umar ibn al-Khattab, and we don't even need to go through, you know, a, a very quick glance at, you know, the manner in which Uthman lived, and the reason why he was murdered by the Muslims themselves, and there was a coup against him, there was a revolution against him, and then no need to go into, you know, the Khulafa of Bani Umayyah and Bani Abbas and others. They were not only just normal people, full of mistakes and flaws and shortcomings, they were actually extremely corrupt. They would kill each other, they would kill their father or their brother or their cousin only to get to the throne, and they committed all sorts of injustice and so on and so forth. So when we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling and ordering and commanding the Muslims that they must obey Allah and they must obey the messenger and those vested with authority. So we have just excluded, we've just dismissed a whole bunch of people because they are the ones that usually they say, those are the ones who are vested with authority. Well, they can't be. Allah just told us to, we must obey them. And if they're making mistakes, do we obey them? If they're committing sins and corruption, do we obey them? So clearly it cannot be them. So who's left? And as we said, the only ones who have ever claimed to meet the criteria that we just gave and about whom others have claimed that they can only be the ones who have met this criteria is Ahlul Bayt So this is why this second verse is important to understanding the notion of infallibility of the Imams. The third verse, the very famous verse of the verse of purification in Surah Al-Ahzab 33.33. The verse says, indeed Allah wills or Allah wishes or Allah desires to repel or to push away all impurity from you, O people of the household, and purify you with a thorough purification. Okay, so how does this verse demonstrate the infallibility, the asma of Ahlul Bayt when we talked about the divine traits, when we talked about the divine attributes, one of them was, we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he desires or wants something, we said it could be of two different kinds. It could be existential or it could be legislative. And we said, for instance, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to guide human beings, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you do not sin, no, let's say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says pray, or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says do not you know, consume alcohol. Okay. Does Allah want us not to obey that or no? Yes, He does. And yet, 
If I wanted to, I could still commit the sin. And if I wanted to, I could still choose not to pray, even though Allah wants me to pray. Okay. So there are cases in which the want, the desire, the wish of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't mean anything more than there is a legislation that has been put in place, a guidance that has been put in place, that if you choose to follow it, you are going to get the benefits of following that. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to force it upon you. You have the freedom of choice to decide, do I pray and give the tawab or not? And it becomes a sin. There's a second type of want, of desire, of wish of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That one is existential. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala desires it, it becomes. It becomes a reality. It comes into existence. And this is, for instance, as we have in Surah Yasin, verse 82, when it says his command, Allah's command, when he desires something, is to say to it, be, and it is. Kun fayakun. This is a desire. Okay, but so how is it different? It's because these are two different types of desires, two different types of will, of divine will. One of them is, it is a will, but it's only legislative. Allah wants you to do it, but he will not force it upon you. He will give you the law, he will give you the rule, but give you the freedom of choice. He will give you the power to sin. Does he want you to sin? Well, he wants you to sin existentially. In other words, he allows you to sin. But does he want you to sin? He does not want you to sin legislatively. He doesn't want you to sin because it's bad for you, but he wants to give you the freedom to do so. Okay. So when we come to the verse of Ayat al-Tahir, verse 33-33, the verse begins by, إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ Allah. The verse says, Allah wants. Which type of want is it? Is it the type of want that is legislative? Just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me to pray? Wants me to fast? Wants me not to sin? Or is it a different type of want? The second type, the existential type. It has to be the existential type. It has to be kun fayakun. It's the irada that is kun fayakun. Why? Because if the verse only meant the guidance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to give to everyone, then that applies to everybody. So if the verse says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to push away impurity, yuridullah liyudhiba ankum rijs if this want and this irada is simply legislative, then there's nothing special. This applies to all of humanity. Allah wants to remove legislatively. Allah wants to remove the impurity from everyone. So what's special about the people of the household? In other words, this has to be the second irada. The irada that is when Allah wants it is existential. It happens. Kun fayakun. The arada kun fayakun. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he wants, it means the impurity has been removed. This is the type of want that it is. Okay, so if we look at the household of the Holy Prophet and we find someone that still sins, that still commits mistakes, that still forgets. For instance, we are told Aisha, the wife of the Prophet, after the Holy Prophet, she went against Imam Ali alayhi salam and led the battle of the camel against Imam Ali. And then she repented to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from that. Okay, 
So if someone looks at this, so clearly she thinks that she made a mistake. She asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to forgive her for that sin. Can we say that this verse applies to her? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has removed the impurity from her and yet she is still sinning? It can't be. Because the sin is still taking place. Which means this is not kunfayakun. It has to be the type of removal of the sin that is actually true. So that when we look at the person, we say this person is actually infallible. And in this way, we show that this verse demonstrates clearly that it can only apply to people who are truly infallible. And this cannot be said about just anyone. Just studying anyone's life, any one of us, if you just observe them for a day or two or three, you're going to find dozens of mistakes and gaps and shortcomings and accidents and conscious and unconscious, voluntary or not. So how can we say that someone lived their entire life as a public figure, just like the Imams did, just like Ahmed Bayt did, and no one is ever able to come back and say they ever forgot something, made a mistake, uh, you know, uh, confused two things, two people, ever about anything. Okay, so this becomes, this verse, this is why it's so important to establish this notion of infallibility. And if we add to it that if you go back to the verse, the, the, the commentaries related to the Holy Quran, specifically related to this verse, entire volumes have been written about this verse. The verse, Ayat al-Tabtiyah. Okay? And um, the second thing is, if you go to the Sunni sources related, the compilations of ahadith of the Sunni sources, they have more than 70 authentic narrations related to this verse that clearly state that these people, the household, are Ahlul Bayt Okay, there's a question. I'll answer it very quickly before we move to the next one. In verse 33:33 is an existential will. Does this mean that the mams can't physically sin? No, it means that sinning has been removed from them. There, these are two completely different levels. And of course, the sinning has been removed, as we explained when we talked about infallibility, when we talked about prophets. We said, can prophets perform a sin or not? And we said, of course they can, but they choose not to. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose them, because they never choose to sin. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even further removes the sinning or the impurity or anything from them. Okay? And if the impurity were to come, then it would cause a problem for faith itself because these are the people who represent God on earth. So inshallah, this is clear, but we can explain it more. But it's the same exact argument and uh, you know demonstration that we gave when we spoke about the infallibility of the prophets. As one example related from our books, related to Ayat al-Tadhir, from Ghayat al-Maram, so this is uh, Sayyid al-Bahrani, uh, Shaykh al-Saduq reports that the Holy Prophet said to Imam Ali salam, so this is the explanation of this verse. He says, O Ali, this verse was revealed for you, my two grandsons, Imam Hassan Hussein, and the Imams from your progeny. So Imam Ali, he's the one who's telling us about this verse. He says, so I said, O Messenger of God, how many Imams are there after you? 
He said, you, O Ali, then your two sons, Al-Hasan and Al-Husayn, then after Al-Husayn, his son Ali, then after Ali, his son Muhammad, then after Muhammad, his son Ja'far, then after Ja'far, his son Musa, then after Musa, his son Ali, then after Ali, his son Muhammad, then after Muhammad, his son Ali, then after Ali, his son Al-Hasan, then after Al-Hasan, his son Al-Hujjah, God's argument, this is the manner in which the Holy Prophet is telling Imam Ali salam, this is the manner in which I found their names written on the edge of the throne, of Allah's throne. So I asked Allah, the Prophet says, exalted as sublime is he, about it, and he replied, O Muhammad, those are the Imams after you, purified, infallible, while their enemies are damned or are cursed. Okay, so this is one narration, we don't have time to go through others. Now, after these verses of the Holy Quran to establish infallibility, let's look at one hadith, which is Hadith At-Tafalain. And again, we're just giving the most important uh, scriptural arguments, evidence for, for the infallibility. Hadith At-Tafalain basically means the hadith of the two weighty things, the two things that are heavy. In other words, the two things that are very important, they're very valuable, okay? The hadith itself, we explained these terms last time. We said, what does mutawatir mean? We said that there are so many independent sources that are authentic, that <clears throat> report an incident, that the likelihood that the incident is not true becomes basically goes to zero. Okay, this is what the tawatur actually means. So when we say there's a hadith mutawatir, the scholars basically say that the likelihood that this is not true is nil or or not even worth considering. And these are the most authentic. When they say the hadith is extremely authentic, no one, there's consensus, it means it's mutawatir. That's what it means. There are a few different formulations, variants of hadith at thaqalain The one that we are about to read is the one that is mutawatir. Okay? There is one version of it that is not mutawatir, and that one is considered weak. And this is the one that is usually cited by those who don't like hadith of Thaqalain. They say that it doesn't, it doesn't say Ahl Bayti or Itrati, they say uh, Sunnati. Okay, and it's considered weak. It's a weak hadith. And everybody agrees that it's weak, and most of their scholars have said it's actually fabricated. Anyways, there is a minimum. There is minimum. Okay, others have said there's a lot more companions of the Prophet who have independently reported this, who have said they heard the Holy Prophet, so they're not reporting from each other. They're reporting directly from the Prophet independently. At the minimum, 30 different narrators from the Holy Prophet. And if you go to the books, in the most authentic books, it's available as an authentic, and they all say there's consensus. And there is 500 plus of the most important books of hadith in the Sunni world by Sunni scholars who have reported Hadith al-Thaqalain, and Hadith al-Thaqalain, as we will read it, is not really open to interpretation. It says, I am leaving among you, behind me, the two weighty things. So long as you hold on to both of them, you will never go astray after me. One of them is the Book of Allah, a rope extended from the heavens to the earth, and the other is my progeny of my household. Surely they will never leave one another until they come to me at the basin, at Hawwa, Hawwa al-Kawfa. Now, what we get from this, because we can spend the whole, you know, hours of lecturing on the significance of this hadith. Let's go to the punchlines. What this means is the Holy Prophet is saying there's two things that are equal to each other, and those are the two things I'm leaving among you. When I am passing away, the Holy Prophet says, I leave two things that you need to hold on to, both of them. And that's why he says there's a rope 
They're both equal to each other. Ahlul Bayt and the Holy Quran, which tells us what? Whatever you say about the Holy Quran, you have to say about Ahlul Bayt. Can you accept if someone says there are shortcomings, there are gaps, there are mistakes in the Quran? The same thing applies to Ahlul Bayt. If someone tells you that someone is with the Quran, they will never leave the Quran, and the Quran will never leave them, as the Holy Prophet says. What does it mean? It means that these people cannot perform a mistake. If they do a mistake, then you see them and you see the mistake and you will right away say, but how is this the Quran? This is supposed to be a personification, an application of the Holy Quran. This is the person who's supposed to be the role model showing what the Quran would look like in human form. This is why they have to go together. So if you see something wrong with them, it means they have now left the Quran. To that extent, even if it's just one mistake. And this clearly establishes, if you say there is someone who is equal to the Holy Quran, in other words, you have just said that they are as infallible as the Holy Quran is infallible. And there is no Muslim who will accept that the Holy Quran is not infallible. It's part of your core belief as a Muslim. Okay. The second point, I think it's an important one, and this is a huge mistake. There are people who want to understand this hadith as meaning or. You can choose Ahlul Bayt or the Quran. So if you hold on to the Holy Quran, you have the whole truth. And if you hold on to Ahlul Bayt alone, you have the whole truth. No. The Holy Prophet says to have the whole truth, you have to have both of them together. It's and. To have the whole truth, you need the Holy Quran and Ahlul Bayt. You can't have Ahlul Bayt without the Holy Quran, and you cannot have the Quran on its own without Ahlul Bayt. And this is where a lot of people have made huge mistakes, and they've created sects and schools and all sorts of weirdness and corruption and mistakes because of this, because they've went to one and left to the other. So if you want to be safe, as the Holy Prophet says, you hold on to both of them as equals to each other. Okay? That's first point. Another point is, I think that one we made clear is that any sinning, any mistakes, any lack of knowledge on the part of these people would mean if, they, if you believe the Holy Prophet, then there's a lack in the Quran because they're equal. Or you say, this cannot be that person. So if someone, let's say, is from the claims to be of this Ahlul Bayt, Itrati Ahl Bayti, and I want to say, let's say, it's the, the wives of the Holy Prophet or someone else from Bani Abbas or anyone else. It's very easy. All I need to see is have they ever per performed a sin, committed a sin, or made a mistake? Anyone who has, then is automatically excluded. Whoever is left in the end, those are the people that the Holy Prophet is referring to. Or the easy way is to go to the Holy Prophet, as we did in the last lecture, and he told us exactly who Hadith al-Thaqalain applies to, and what the other verses of the Quran combined with it actually say who these people are. Okay? The last point related to this, if you really think about Hadith al-Thaqalain, you will realize if the Holy Prophet is saying they will always remain together until they reach me at Hawb al-Kawthar, Yom al-Qiyamah. In other words, the Holy Prophet is giving us first a guarantee that the Holy Quran is going to remain as the Holy Quran until the end of times. That's one. Great. Great news for us as Muslims. Two, he is saying that those people are always going to be with the Holy Quran until the end of times, which becomes a proof for 
the everlasting presence of an imam in this world, including the imam of our time. Hadith al-Thaqalain means if there is a Qur'an, then there is an imam with it. If there is an imam, there is a Qur'an with it. Today, we don't see the imam. We see the Qur'an, but if we believe in Hadith al-Thaqalain, then we must infer, then we must say, since the Qur'an is here, the imam is here. The Holy Prophet, if I believe his words, he has told me they will never leave each other. They will always be there until the end of times and they will come together to me on near Hawd al-Kawthar, Yom al-Qiyamah. Okay, so these are the points we wanted to establish for Hadith al Now, quickly, I want to go a little bit faster. I'm, uh, it's going to be a prayer soon. This is the topic related to the infallibility, the asma of the Imam. Now that topic should be clear. Let's talk quickly about the divine knowledge of an imam. We already said, the Holy Prophet said about those same imams, we already read those narrations. The Holy Prophet has said, do not teach them. Do not teach them for they are more knowledgeable than you. For that hadith to be true, what type of knowledge does that person have to have so that it applies to everyone? When the Holy Prophet tells his ummah, tells his nation, do not teach someone because they are more knowledgeable than you. Without exception, no matter what you do and how much you will learn, there will never be someone who will come who will be more knowledgeable than them. So what type of knowledge is this? Well, this is not normal human knowledge. This is knowledge directly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is why no one can be more knowledgeable than them. Okay? That's point number one. Point number two. Let's just put all of the, you know, supernatural, religious, scriptural stuff aside for a second. Let's look at the life of Imam Ali alayhi salam when he was born. Just as a human level. As soon as Imam Ali alayhi salam was born, the Holy Prophet came and took him. He was just born. You know, a newborn, like literally a newborn, the Holy Prophet came and took him. And he was responsible even for feeding him. So think about this. This is how Imam Ali salam was raised. And then the Imam would explain and he would say, I would follow the Holy Prophet as a child when the Holy Prophet would go in the mountains to worship alone. And I would go and I would follow him like the baby camel follows his mother. That's how Imam Ali salam tells us in Najil Balagha, he would follow the Holy Prophet. This is how he was raised. And then later, when Imam Ali salam becomes older, the Holy Prophet starts telling us what kind of investment he has put into this man. So he says, I am, the Holy Prophet says, so there should be no doubt about this part, when the Holy Prophet says, I am the city of knowledge. And then he adds, babuha, And Ali is the gate of that city. So now we start to see, if you want to get to the knowledge of the Holy Prophet, there might be other types of knowledge. But me as a Muslim, I'm not really concerned about it. I'm really interested in the knowledge of the Holy Prophet and what he wants to teach me. If I want to get to that knowledge, what do I do? The Holy Prophet does not say, come to me directly. He says, if you want to get to my knowledge, go through Ali. He is the gate. You want to come into the city that I am, the city of knowledge that I am, then come through the gate, Ali and Baba. Faman arad al Medina, whoever wants the city, they must access it through the gate, through Ali. There's only one way to get in, and it's Imam Ali. And then he, Imam Ali salam, later he says about himself, the Holy Prophet, and we were going to read that in a second. The Holy Prophet, he says, the Messenger of Allah has taught me 1,000 gates, chapters, types, categories of knowledge. And every gate opens 1,000 gates. 
So that a thousand thousand gates, in our words today we would say a million gates, would open from them. Until I was made to know what has happened and what will happen until the end of judgment, the day of judgment. And I have been taught the sciences of death. So Imam Ali is basically openly saying, the Holy Prophet has taught me how everybody is going to die, every person how they die. And I have been taught the sciences of death and tribulations, how every person is being tested and with what? And the ultimate forms of speech. And I think there's no one who would doubt the eloquence, the miraculous eloquence, the unmatched eloquence of Imam Ali and his mastery of language. Okay? Does this mean that Imam Ali has ilm al-ghayb? Does this mean that the imma have ghayb? Well, it depends. If, you're, if you mean that they have access to types of knowledge that no one else has access to, yes, they do. But if you mean that somehow they have independent, uh, self, self-sufficient knowledge, no, they don't. This is simply a case where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving, granting someone knowledge. No different than the prophets. No different than anyone else. No different than the mother of Musa alayhi salam, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he told her, he told the mother of Musa, who was not a prophet, she was not a messenger, she was not an imam, she was just a good woman and she was just a mother of a prophet that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to protect. So he told her, feed him, then put him in the box, and then put him in the, in the river, and he will go to somewhere that someone who is my enemy and his enemy. And then he says, he tells her, so this is this type, a type of ilm al-ghayb or no? He tells her, we are going to make him one of the messengers. We're going to make this baby a prophet. So her knowledge that he's going to be a prophet, is this ilm al-ghayb? Well, it depends. If we mean that this is ilm al-ghayb that she knows by herself all on her own, no. But that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has inspired her to know this? Yes, of course. And there's no issue in that. Okay? And then this type of knowledge, because we're talking about the knowledge of the imams, is it limited to the prophets? Is it limited to them? No, it's, it goes to others. Does it necessarily mean that it's only the things that the Imam, for instance, Imam Ali السلام, heard directly from the Holy Prophet who said the words to him, and then the Imam goes and says the words to Imam Al-Hassan, who says the words to Imam Hussein, all the way to Imam Mahdi? No, not at all. This is not the type of knowledge that it is. This is a spiritual, divine knowledge. Okay? Like, it has to be very clear. This is why we have terms like, this is an inspired, this is an ilham, an inspiration, something that's revealed to them, although it seems to be in the narrations that it's of a different type of revelation than the revelation of the Holy Prophets. And there are many narrations about this. We don't have time to go through that. If you go in the story of, of uh, the, the chapter of uh, Surah Al-Kahf, and you read the story of Al-Khidr, right? It doesn't say Al-Khidr in the Quran. It just says, Abdan bin Ibadina one of our servants, to whom we have granted knowledge. Okay, or the Al-Qarnayn, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, so we told him and we asked him and he decided, so what is this type of communication? What does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspire and reveal to these people who may not be prophets? They're just servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this tells us that it's not so far-fetched to think that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants special types of knowledge to certain people because he wants to, because they deserve it, because they're on a mission. If we go to the stories of Maryam السلام, the story of the mother of Musa السلام, in many verses of the Quran, clearly there's a communication, an inspiration, a revelation to them. And again, they are not messengers and they're not prophets. Okay, so that should be clear. 
So the divine inspiration is taking place, and these people who are supposed to be the representatives of the Holy Prophet and of God's religion until the end of times are inspired and revealed to in this way. And the case of the Imams is very clear. The Imams themselves, they never attended instructions or lessons with anyone. Not a single instance in history says any of the Imams ever went to learn anything from anyone. And yet everybody is in agreement that everybody says they were the most knowledgeable people of their time. No one was more knowledgeable than they were about anything. And that's why everybody came to them to learn from them despite their age, even when they were very young or they were put to the test and they were forced to say everything, you know, to answer questions that were challenges from others. Okay, so this part should be clear by now. Then we add to this some verses of the Holy Quran. If we look at the verse in Surah Al-Ra'ad 1344, the verse says the disbelievers say, you are not a messenger. Say, O Prophet, say, Allah suffices as witness between me and you, and he who possesses the knowledge of the book. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, it's enough that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bears witness that you are a prophet, and he who has the knowledge of the book. Those are enough of a witness that you are a prophet. Even if everybody becomes a disbeliever and everybody disbelieves. Okay. Another verse of the Quran, Surah Hud 11.17, it says, is he who stands on a manifest proof from his Lord, so the Holy Prophet, is he who stands on a manifest proof from his Lord and whom a witness of his own follows. Okay. So the Holy Prophet stands on a manifest clear proof from Allah and there's a witness of his own who is going to follow. So here we want to know what do these verses mean? Who are they referring to? Numerous narrations in the Sunni tradition clearly say that the verse in Surah Al-Ra'ad is clearly talking about Imam Ali In one instance, and this is mentioned in many, many narrations, we are told that in the time of Imam al-Baqir he was sitting with a man, uh, he was sitting with one of his companions and a man passed by. And that man was the, the descendant, the grandson of a man who had entered into Islam from Christianity. Okay, Abdullah ibn Salam. And that man, was known to be kind of like a very knowledgeable, I don't want to say he was a monk, but he was a knowledgeable Christian who had entered into Islam at the time of the Holy Prophet. So Imam Baqir salam, sitting with his companion, his companion saw the man and he says, this is the son of the man about whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you know, and he who has the knowledge of the book. The man, the companion of Imam al-Baqir is repeating what the people say. So Imam al-Baqir tells him, no, the verse that you are reciting is about Ali and it's about him that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says he who possesses the knowledge of the book and it's about him that Allah says he who stands on a manifest proof from his Lord and whom a witness of his own family follows and it's about him that Allah says truly your guardian is only Allah and his messenger and those who have faith those who maintain the prayer and who give the zakah while bowing down in prostration and if we take all of this these narrations, and we compare them with another verse of the Quran in Surah An-Naml, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the man who brought the throne of Balqis, the queen of Sabah, brought her to Sulaiman hundreds of kilometers away 
he carried the throne and he brought it and he brought it to Sulaiman when the jinn told him, I can bring it to you before you stand up. You raise from your seat. And the one who had some of the knowledge of the book told Sulaiman, I will bring it to you before that you blink or you, your eye twinkles. And so he told them, you can bring it so that everybody sees who the, what kind of knowledge this man has. And the verse of the Quran says, and the one who had some knowledge of the book. He had some knowledge of the book. He did not have the knowledge of the whole book. The verse in Surah Al-Ra'd that Imam Al-Baqir tells us was about Imam Ali says, Allah suffices as a witness between me and you and he who possesses the knowledge of the entire book. Okay, and so if you go into this narration, Sadir reports in one of our books, he says, I was in the presence of Imam al-Sadiq with Abu Basir, Yahya al-Bazzar, Dawood ibn Kathir. The Imam Sadiq came out to us angered. When he took his seat, peace upon him, he said, how strange are people claiming that we know the hidden, Ilm al-Ghayb. No one knows the hidden save God, the exalted is he. I wanted to punish one of my slaves, so she ran away, and I did not know in which room of the house she was hiding. So when he got up from his gathering and entered into his room, I entered his house accompanied by these by, by Abu Basir and Maysar, and we said to him, may we be a ransom to you. We heard you while you were saying such and such. We heard you say that you did not even know that in which room the slave girl went, right? That you wanted to, to punish. We heard you when you said that. But we also know that you have great knowledge. We do not attribute the knowledge of the hidden to you, so we're not sure. What do we say about your knowledge? So the Imam answered. He said, Oh, Sadiya, have you not read the Quran? I said, Yes, I have. He said, So did you not find in what you read in God's book, exalted is he, the one who had some of the knowledge of the book said, I will bring it to you before the blink of an eye. I said, May I be a ransom to you? I have read it. He said, So did you not recognize that man? And did you, did you understand what he possessed from the book of, from the knowledge of the book? I answered, inform me of it. He said, a drop of water in the blue sea. So the Imam is telling him when Allah says in, in the Quran, when Allah says that this man had a knowledge of, some knowledge of the Quran, some knowledge of the book. How much is that? He says, I don't know. So the Imam tells him, it's the equivalent of a drop in the sea. That's how much knowledge he had. A drop in the sea. And then the Imam continues and he says, O Sadir, I answered him, he says, a drop in the sea. He said, O Sadir, did you not find in what you read in God's book, exalted is he? Allah suffices as a witness between me and you, and he who possesses the knowledge of the book. I said, I have read it. He said, does he who has the knowledge of the book know more, or he who has some knowledge of the book? So I answered, no, he who has the knowledge of the book entirely. So he pointed his hand towards his chest, Imam Sadiq and he said, I swear by God, the entire knowledge of the book is with us. By God, the entire knowledge of the book is with us. So this is to clearly establish the knowledge of the Imams. And then very quickly, allow me just to read these, these few hadith. When God chooses Imam al-Rada part of a long sermon, he says, when God chooses a servant over the affairs of his servants, he expands his heart for the task and places the flowing fountains of wisdom therein and inspires him knowledge directly, so that he is never burdened by a question, nor lost about truth. He is infallible and supported, and granted fortune and aided, and protected from sins, mistakes, and slips. God grants this to him only in order to make him a proof for his servants. 
and a witness over his creatures. That is God's favor, which he grants whomever he wishes. So how will they proceed to choose him? Or how could they make the one they choose fit such a description so they prefer him over others? In another hadith from Imam Sadiq, he tells us, asked how does a man, Imam answer all these types of questions that they get? The Imam Sadiq said, something inspired or heard or sometimes both. Imam Sadiq also says, an Imam who does not know what will happen to him or who does not know his outcome can never be a proof of God upon his servants. In another hadith, Imam Sadiq says, when an Imam wills to know, he knows. So they may not know everything all at once, but as they need to know, they can access the knowledge that is required. And finally, he was asked about the verse that says, thus have we revealed to you a spirit by our command. The Imam said, a creature, a ruh is a creature of God, greater than Jibra'il and Mikail, who was with the messenger of Allah, informing him and assisting him and who is now with the Imams after him. With this, inshallah, we have clearly established that for someone to be an Imam, they need to be divinely appointed, they need to be infallible, and they need to have access to divine knowledge. And with this, we have completed the topic of Imamah, inshallah. We will have one more lecture that is planned to discuss the Imamah of the last Imam, the Imam of our time, Ajallah Ta'ala Farajahu Sharif, Imam Mahdi Ajallah Faraja. That's going to be what we cover next time. Wassallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa tahirin. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad.